0: Shirley, great to keep that open, and uh, there are handouts there um, if that would be helpful for you uh, just to see where we're going or to take some notes. Well, uh, as I kind of said, and as you see, we're returning to Luke. I think we left off about 18 months ago, um, so, but we're coming back, and we're going to be in Luke until Christmas, um, covering, roughly speaking, end of chapter 5 to uh, chapter 9 thinking about the upside-down kingdom that Jesus uh, brings established uh, and brings his people into. Let's pray as we uh, come to this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your, uh, your good word to us. Thank you for this book of Luke that gives certainty into who Jesus is and what he came to do. And as we look at it today, as we look at him, please, Father, would you give us that certainty Please, would you help us to respond to Jesus rightly from what we see too. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're coming here back to Luke, to Luke's account of Jesus, of his life, and ultimately at the end, his death and his resurrection. And we all come to church this morning, we all come to Jesus from different upbringings and different backgrounds. Uh, Some will come from if I use a kind of very religious upbringings and backgrounds, so that might mean kind of genuine Christianity. Uh, that could have been kind of um, a kind of dead and a works-based idea of Christianity. Could be another religion. So people come from religious backgrounds, and uh, many more. Again, in this room, will come from irreligious backgrounds, from kind of godless, potentially even kind of god-hating backgrounds. Now I'm speaking very general terms here. In very general terms, it is very possible and quite common that people coming from kind of religious backgrounds come to Jesus with the kind of understanding, maybe deep down, maybe kind of subconscious, but that our relationship to him is based upon who we are and how we perform. As long as I don't do those things, and as long as I do do those things, then I'm going to be okay. And he's going to be pleased with me. Equally, if you're coming kind of from an irreligious background, well, then a kind of very common understanding is well, Christianity, Jesus is basically all about don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And following Jesus, therefore, is basically to suck the life and fun and joy out of life. Now, very general terms. But I think those two things very very often underpin, our backgrounds underpin how we approach and see Jesus. And today, both of those things, you won't be surprised, but both of those things are blown out of the water. As we see Jesus have three encounters with the religious leaders of the day. Back in chapter 4, Jesus has burst onto the scene. I say burst because he came and he was casting out demons. He was healing uh, many uh, sick people, and he was teaching, and he quickly became known. But I say burst, but it wasn't quite burst because actually his his arrival took place in, in Nazareth, his hometown, a bit kind of backwater town, just at a kind of the local synagogue, the local meeting place. But there he announced his mission. Jesus came to preach good news to set free people who are under God's judgment. That is what Jesus is all about. And chapters four and five have started to see Jesus live that out. And so last time out, I say it was about 18 months ago, so you'll be forgiven if you don't remember every single detail. But last time out, and that's why we had it read, although we're not looking in much detail, last time out, Jesus called Levi to be one of his followers a tax collector, one of the worst, most despised members of Jewish society. And Jesus called him to follow him. And the Pharisees, they were like the religious leaders of the day. They were the religious establishment. Well, they really didn't like it. And so you can see, if you just look back to chapter 5, verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and Sinners. And so, even so early on in Jesus' ministry, we see that he is rocking the boat of the religious establishment and they're not happy with it. How could Jesus come and associate with the kind of the worst and the lowly? And then, today, as I mentioned, we, we see these three further interactions with the Pharisees as tensions get raised further. And what we learn from the first interaction that we see in your Um, on your handout, see it up there, is that Jesus is doing something joyfully new. Jesus is doing something joyfully, excuse me, new. And this conflict, um, the first conflict, comes over the the practice of fasting. So have a look at verse 33, chapter 5, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So they're speaking of Jesus' disciples, but really it's a criticism of Jesus. Your disciples are doing this. You're allowing them to do this. And their accusation, they're having too much fun. They're eating and drinking. They're having too much fun. They've just complained of Jesus that he eats and drinks with... Tax collectors that he associates with the kind of the 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 scum, and now here they're eating and drinking, they're having a good time. See, the fasting was an act of of religious piety, a kind of very a tone of seriousness, taking their relationship with God very seriously. Once a year, God called his people, the, the Jews, to to fast. Once a year. The Pharisees fasted twice a week and they made these man they made they had these man-made rules uh, to ensure that the people kept to these this fasting which kind of elevated it in its importance but Jesus says to them now is not the time for fasting now is the time for feasting we'll look at his response in a second but but in the old testament Fasting was associated really with two things. Number one, mourning. A mourning of sin or a situation. And secondly, it was associated with a kind of longing. They were unhappy with how things were now and they're yearning to God to act and to change. And there are many examples in the Old Testament, but the clearest one is is perhaps this this one day a year when God's people were commanded to fast. It was the Day of Atonement the day when people came together to mourn their sin. And the high priest made atonement for the people. And so the the, the high priest, amongst other things, would kill a goat and sprinkle its blood in God's presence. And it would lay its hands on on a live goat, confessing the sins of the people. And that goat would be driven off into the wilderness. It was a day of mourning their sins, and these sacrifices made atonements, made uh, forgiveness, made a reconciliation between God and his people. But it was also a longing of what that day was pointing to. Because no, no animal could ever truly deal with the problem of sins. So it was just pointing forward, looking forward to a day when sins would truly be dealt with. So from Scripture's point of view, fasting is about mourning and about longing which is why Jesus says that now is not the time for fasting. Now is the time for feasting. Have a look at verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So throughout the Bible, again, God describes himself as uh, the bridegroom of his people. We saw it two weeks ago in Isaiah 54, if you were here then. And Jesus describes himself to be the bridegroom of God's people. Now traditionally in, in kind of, uh, in England, and this was a wedding I actually went to last summer, um, but traditionally you know, the, the groom's kind of hiding right at the front. The groom kind of stands there waiting in church, or in this case in a um, chateau, but and the, 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 the groom stands there at the front and waits, and then the bride kind of travels along later and then arrives, and then things kick off. But in Jewish culture back then, it was the other way around. Generally speaking, the the wedding would take place at the bride's family. And so the bride would be there. And when the groom arrived, well, the party started. And Jesus says to the religious leaders, I'm here. I have arrived. It's now time for the party to start. It's, It's celebration time. Because those sins that you should mourn I've come to deal with. Your longing for real change for you and for God's people. I've come to do it. I've come to do what those goats could never do, but what they pictured, that, that dealing with sin, I've come to, to do, deal with that once and for all. At the end of my life, they don't know this yet, but at the end of my life, as I, as I lay down my life, as I am sacrificed so that atonement could be made, here, yeah, that day then, or well, that time then, it's a new day in God's salvation plan. The bridegroom has arrived. It's celebration time. But equally, as I've just referred to, the, the, the next breath, Jesus does acknowledge his death will come. So, in verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And that, that word taken away is kind of taken away by force, ripped away. The time will come. Verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So kind of today, us now, where we we are here, is it a time for fasting or for feasting? Which is it? It's kind of both. Okay, it's time for for feasting, for celebration, because Jesus has come and he has done that work of making atonements and yet he has gone away, we are not physically with him, and we are looking forward to that eternal wedding banquet. So kind of today it's kind of both. It's a time of celebration of what Jesus has done, but it is a time of longing. But Jesus then tells the, the, the Pharisees um, a parable, a story with a meaning. Uh, he tells a couple of facts. So to kind of reinforce this point. So verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now, I was actually gonna kind of act this out and then um, I thought that's just gonna take too long and I won't be able to kind of rip and sew and all those things but it's a kind of everyday story, okay? You've got an old garment that is worn out and there is a hole in it. What do you do? Well, what you don't do, no one, he starts, no one ever, what you don't do is go, hey, here, I've got this brand new shirt. Let me rip a piece out of this one and patch it onto that one. No one does that because then you have utterly ruined this new shirt and the new bit doesn't match the old anyway and you have two ruined garments. No one does that. And the second one, I decided I couldn't act out because it would involve killing a sheep, pulling out its stomach, <laughs> cleaning out the stomach, uh, cleaning all the, 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 stomach's, um, the sheep's stomach's skin, uh, and then pouring wine into it because that's, that's, that was their equivalent of the wine bottle. Okay? The, the way they stored their wine, they would take the wine, they would pour it into a cleaned out sheep's stomach, and, and as the, the new wine was left, it would kind of ferment and it would expand but because the sheep's stomach was kind of new, uh, it would expand with it, and it would be fine. Um, and but kind of Jesus kind of explains that the second one, verse 37. Uh, and no one, and same thing again. No one does this. No one puts wine, new wine, into old wine skin, skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. Because after a while, those wineskins, they would kind of toughen up. And so if you put the new wine in it that fermented and expanded, well, then it would burst. It wouldn't stretch with it. And so you've broken the wineskin and you've lost all the new wine. No one's going to do that. The point Jesus is making is that what I am here to do won't fit with your old ways. You, Jewish, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, what I'm here to do won't fit with your old religious ways. Your man-made, legalistic, falsely pietistic attitudes and actions have no place in what I'm doing, and there can be no kind of amalgamation or no, um, yeah, no amalgamation, no bringing together of Jesus and that that Jewish tradition. So, so what? Jesus also, though, he does speak to us here today. Though we might not be tempted to to mix in with it, fasting twice a week, what he says to us today is that you can't view me and my work as an add-on to what you can do. It's not something to patch up your attempts to make yourself respectable to God. It's not something to cover up those few small holes of your failures before him. You see, that attitude of the Pharisees is very much alive and well today, too. The old way is very much alive. That thinking that, look, by being the right kind of people, by doing the right kind of things, by taking my religious life really seriously, well, then I can be good enough for God. That attitude of the Pharisees is such a danger, thinking that by being the right kind of people, by doing the right kind of things, and I can impress him, by reading my Bible every day, by not swearing or stealing, by serving at church, by being the most serious person in Bible study, then I can be good enough for God, or at least I'm not too far away. Yes, I might need Jesus to kind of patch me up, top me up a little bit, but by and large, I can do it on my own. Jesus says no. I am the bridegroom who has come to lay down my life for his people. I am the one who will bring atonement. I am the one who will bring you into a relationship with God. You don't need to try and do it. In fact, you can't do it by yourself. I am bringing something joyfully new, freedom from that, those old ways of uh, religion and earning your way. And Jesus is saying to us, again, you, you, look, you can't fill yourself with me and my teaching, but kind of keep it within the confines of your old way of life. You can't listen to all these sermons. You can't answer all those questions at vineyards. You can't be interested and, and kind of feel better because of them and agree in your head, but not have it change your life. Now, the new wine must go into new wineskins. skins. Jesus finishes really with a stark warning in verse 39. He says, "Look, And no one after drinking the old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. He's speaking to the Pharisees and saying, Look, you don't want this new way. You're happy with your old way of life. You're not going to embrace the new. In fact, I'm not even going to try it. And people will be put off Jesus by the challenge to their pride. Some people want to patch Jesus on. Some people want to try and bottle him up. Some refuse to try him at all. But Jesus has come to do something joyfully new. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus is restoring things to how they should be. The second two encounters um, show so clearly why a new way is needed. They both happen on the Sabbath. And that is the theme that runs through these two encounters. Sabbath simply means rest. That's the word it means. It means rest. And in creation, we see that God rested. In six days, God made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh, he rested. And following his pattern, he commanded his people to rest, to work six days and have one day of rest. For the Jews, it was nightfall Friday to nightfall Saturday. But rest was more than just kind of this, you know, having a day a week to sit with your feet up, or a day a week to have a nice lion, breakfast in bed, turn Netflix on and not move for the rest of the day. It, that wasn't what God had in mind by rest. The rest, the Sabbath that um, God is thinking about is more this idea of having things as they should be. Sabbath is having things and enjoying things as they should be. So God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired. No, he rested because his work was done. He saw his creation, he saw it was very good, and he rested. And rest through the Old Testament was used as a picture to describe the promised land that God was going to bring his people into. He was going to bring his people into the rest, as it should be. God's people in God's place with him ruling them. And then in the New Testament, again, that word is used to describe heaven and the new creation. You see, true Sabbath is having things as they should be and enjoying them there. And so Sabbaths here on earth are are a pale reflection of that. They are a time to enjoy God, to enjoy the things of his creation, and to look forward to that proper final rest. But these two Sabbath encounters aren't teaching us kind of what we should or shouldn't do on a, on a Sabbath, on a Sunday. or, or it, It's not about that. It, it's much more speaking of the, the Sabbath rest that Jesus brings. Back then, the, the Sabbath was really important to the Jews and the religious leaders. They, again, they really wanted to make sure all the people were observing it, and so they came up with these 39 uh, things that constituted work, 39 things that you were not allowed to do. So, for example, no writing, no building, no kindling a fire, no cleaning, I could get behind that one, but um, no baking, no carrying, and many more. And the Pharisees were like the self-appointed Sabbath police, uh, and they, they couldn't tell the difference between God's law and their own rules. They'd kind of come blurred together. Uh, and so uh, one day, um, when they saw him, have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some ears of corn, rubbing them in their hands. And when they saw that, they're kind of getting the, the, the handcuffs out. Okay, because by plucking corn and rubbing it in their hands, they're guilty of not one, but not two, but three, not three, but four. Four. Um, broken rules. Reaping, threshing, winnowing, preparing. And so, verse 2, some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, how, uh, how Jesus answers this question is really important. So he could have said, no, they're fine, you don't understand the real purpose of the Old Testament law. could have said that. He could have said, no, they're fine. My death and resurrection will dramatically alter what the Sabbath is. He could have said, no, they're fine. They're just breaking your man-made rules. All of those things would have been true. But he doesn't do that. What Jesus does is to remind them of an Old Testament story. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David, King David, is well, he's not King David yet. He'd been anointed by God as the king. But the king on the throne, Saul, in his jealousy, is trying to to kill David before he can truly become king. And David and his his men are fleeing. And so in verse 3, Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So, you see, so there's this special bread that's in the temple that only priests can eat. But Daniel and his men fleeing us starving. And so he asked for and then receives that bread for him and his friends. He, he, he broke the law in the strictest sense. But nowhere in 1 Samuel 21 or anywhere else is David criticized. Why? Well, because he is the Lord's anointed. And he had the authority to interpret the law. And the issue here in in Luke chapter 6 is the same one. It's an issue of authority. And so he says to them in verse 5, look, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Me, I am this anointed one. I am the king. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And therefore, he is the one with authority to determine what scripture really means to determine what the Sabbath really is. And then in the final um, uh, encounter with the the religious leaders, we get we kind of unpacked, what does it mean that he is Lord of the Sabbath? Well, in verse 6, this kind of fairly typical scene, Jesus has gone to the synagogue, and he was teaching, and there was a man with a withered hand. Verse 7, And the scribes and the Pharisees, they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, So, they might find a reason to accuse him. That word watch is the kind of idea of spying, looking out the corner of your eye. So, you kind of might be having a conversation over here, but you're kind of really looking over there. They're watching him, they're trying to find fault. Back at our previous church, um, uh, we, we got a health and safety inspection from the council. And it kind of produced a bit of kind of nerves in us in the build-up, you know, because you kind of think like the health and safety inspectors, their sole purpose in life is to find faults. Right? They're here to find problems. In it. As it turns out, actually, she was very pleasant, very helpful. And It wasn't quite like that. But here, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They're trying to find fault with Jesus so that they might have a reason to accuse him. But, verse 8. He knew their thoughts. And that didn't stop him. He knew their thoughts. He knew what they were trying to do. And yet he said to the man with the withered hand to come and stand here. And he rose and and, and stood there. And then before where Jesus answered their question so well, well now he asked one of his own. Verse nine. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? To save a life or destroy it? Very simple question, and yet penetrating. Is it lawful, what's right, is it right lawful to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to harm a life? Well, that question exposes their hypocrisy. And so, verse 10, after looking round at them all, and I'd love to know what that kind of look was was about. Like, was it despair was it kind of hope was it but looking around at them all he said he said to the man stretch out your hand and he did so and his hand was restored and you think any neutral observer there surely is going to respond in joy in wonder in worship but of course these aren't neutral observers and so verse 11 they were filled with fury discussed with one another what they might do with jesus how wicked their old religious ways were. In attempting to protect their Sabbath traditions, they are plotting harm on a Sabbath. On the Sabbath that was meant to save a life, they are plotting a way to take a life. Who's really keeping the Sabbath? I think once again, there is a warning for us from the Pharisees. For them, observing, keeping the the Sabbath was like the, the litmus test of faithfulness to God. And I think it's possible to kind of develop our own kind of litmus test. If I do that, well, then I'm fine. And anything else kind of goes. How easy it is to make a list of things that make us good enough for God while at the same time actually missing the things that are important to Him. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't gossip with my colleagues, I don't get drunk, I'm faithful to my spouse, I come to church every week, I join in with the whole service, but with a heart that is completely unengaged to what's going on. Never pray, never enjoy time with the Lord, have no love for the lost, there is more to faithfulness than simply avoiding certain sins. There's a warning from the Pharisees, but it is also a wonderful insight into Jesus. He came to save lives. A picture so beautifully in the life of this man as he has his hand restored, restored as it should be. This is a wonderful picture of the salvation that Jesus brings, the Sabbath that Jesus brings, life as it should be. Jesus commands, uh, so it's a wonderful picture of the, the salvation that he brings to every single one of us who have come to him. Look, he commands the man to do what he wasn't able to do. He wasn't able to stretch out his hands. He commands the man to do what he wasn't able to do, and God enables him to do what he couldn't do. And he's saved, he's restored. So we say, look, come to Jesus, trust in him, trust in him that he is the one who saves. None of us can do that by ourselves. But when God enables us, well, then we are restored. Restored now in some measure. New life, relationship with him, with the, the, the bridegroom, the joy that that brings. But looking forward ultimately to that full and final restoration, the real rest, when Jesus comes back and makes everything as it should be. These accounts really are accounts of of the old way and the new way. Uh, What are you going to choose? What's better? want the old way, that is these uh, uh, numerous rules to keep, that self-righteous, make yourself good enough for God. That old way that actually um, hates and spurns and rejects uh, Jesus and His grace and his, His love and that plots to do harm rather than to save. Do you want that old way? Or do you want the new way? Relationship with the bridegroom. Relationship with the one who brings that joy, that party, that re- the relationship, that celebration, that frees from that legalistic, self-righteous, I have to earn my way into God's good books and keep myself there. The old way or the new way? Well, Jesus is surely the way. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus, who came to completely revolutionise uh, the way, the, way, the old way, the the, uh, the way that those Pharisees sought to conduct their relationship with you. We praise you that it our, our relationship with you is not based on who we are and our performance, but on uh, the Lord Jesus and all He has done. Please, Father, would we embrace Him fully? Embrace His new way, not being self-righteous, not seeking to to uh, to earn our way in any measure, but simply clinging to Him, our our great Bridegroom. In Jesus' name, Amen.